You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Politics is defined as the activities involved in governing or achieving power, and it is no surprise that there are often strong ties to money. Today's Global IQ is with Milan Veshnov, who is a senior fellow and the director of the South Asia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is the author of When Crime Pays, Money and Muscle in Indian Politics. Welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. The number of Indian politicians charged and convicted of crimes is staggering, reaching 20 percent, I understand, of the members of parliament elected in 2014. Wouldn't the public be better served if their elected representatives were trustworthy and perhaps innocent of such criminal behavior? I think one of the things that I try to show in my book is that these so-called criminal politicians are actually highly effective representatives of the people. And quite often, voters support these individuals, not in spite of their criminal records, but because of them because their criminal reputation seems to give them an edge, that they're willing to do whatever it takes by hook or crook to get stuff done. When the state is seen as weak, is not seen as impartial, is not seen as an effective deliverer of basic goods, things like justice, things like safety, things like social welfare, voters are going to look for someone who can fill in that gap. And in India's case, unfortunately, it is criminal politicians. So tell me, how does corruption differ from criminality? So when someone is corrupt, they are taking some of your money and they are putting it in their pockets and you are not getting anything in return. These folks, they may be involved in corruption, but that is not their claim to fame. They are using, quite literally, their muscle power to pressure bureaucrats to get someone their welfare payment. If there is a rival group that is trying to encroach on your land, to use that muscle power to keep them at bay. So corruption may be part of their repertoire, but my belief is if that was the only thing they had going for them, they wouldn't last very long in electoral politics. You know, what really surprised me was, I can understand, and we'll talk a bit about the United States, but you know, someone might take a bribe for a contractor or something like that, or a legal campaign contribution. But some of the members of parliament have been charged, if not convicted, yeah. with really serious crimes. That's right. A third of members of parliament elected in 2014, that's the last time India had a national election, are under criminal indictment. And that means they have been charged, there's a trial underway, they've not yet been convicted. 20%, so one in five members of parliament, faces a serious case. A serious case means if they were to be convicted, they'd be put away for at least five years. So these are things like murder, attempted murder. Encounter killings. Encounter killings. Encounter killings are essentially when you're trying to fast track a judgment that say there's somebody who you think is a bad guy but you don't want to wait for the long, you know, really slow process of actually bringing that person to book through the justice system. You just create a fake encounter where, oh, 
that guy just got killed and therefore he's no longer a problem. So this is something that the state in India has quite often perpetrated. You know, they have a suspected terrorist. They're worried they don't have the evidence. They're worried this person is a risk. And so they come up, they conjure up encounter killings, often with the connivance of politicians, because at the end of the day, you have to make sure that the whole thing is covered up and political power can be very useful. But wouldn't we like to think that political parties, in a sense, protect us from this and serve as a gatekeeper? As in every democracy, political parties in India do play that essential process of screening and selecting candidates who are going to be on the ballot on election day. What's happened in India is over time, elections have gotten really expensive. Parties do not have the wherewithal to contest elections, so they are increasingly on the hunt for candidates with deep pockets. Now, one demographic that has access to resources and the incentive to plow those resources into politics are people who are associated with criminality. Parties are looking at this and making a very cold calculation. These are people with money. And these are people who seem to have mass support. And that's a winning combination. You know, we had a speaker here a few weeks ago whose wife is now a member of the city council in Austin and talked about how it costs $250,000 to run for a city council seat in Austin. What does it cost in India, say, to be a member of parliament? If you want to be a member of parliament, obviously it's going to vary wildly depending on the part of the country that you're in and urban, rural, and so on and so forth. I spend time with politicians who were spending between two and five million dollars. Now, two and five million dollars may not sound like a lot in the United States, but in India, it's an enormous uh, amount. It's an enormous yeah. amount. I mean, these are people who because they're spending that kind of money, they've got to find a way of making that back. And so it becomes this vicious cycle where you get into office, you've spent $5 million, you've got, you got to recoup that investment, and you've got to make more because you've got to run in five years. But there are limits about what you're allowed to spend in India, but they're just totally ignored? There are limits. You have a problem of, of weak enforcement, and you have a lot of campaign finance laws that are shot through with loopholes. And as we know in our country, we know in every democracy, the only way you fix campaign finance is if the politicians agree to fix it. There's no other way. You know, you have to pass a bill through Congress or through the Parliament to get that done. Obviously, it's not in the incentives of politicians to do that. You know, when I read your book, it, it begged the question, what about elected officials in the United States? So I just did a, a quick Google search, and you'll have to tell me if you think this is correct. Between 2010 and 2017 in the state of Pennsylvania, nearly 30 state and local politicians have been convicted of crimes ranging from embezzlement, bribery, spousal abuse to conflict of interest. And since 1980, two dozen U.S. congressmen have been indicted, and in most cases the charges involved money and attempts to sell influence. So in the big scheme of things, I guess we, our system is relatively honest, or what, not. Well, what I tried to show in this book is that, look, India is the world's largest, most populous democracy. It is the most enduring democracy in the developing world. When you have crime and democracy this interlinked, we need to try to unpack that. But this is a larger story. I mean, if you turn back the clock on our American political system and you think about who ran American politics at the turn of the 20th century, it was a lot of ethnically motivated, corrupt, machine politicians who knew how to throw their weight around. One difference between America and India is typically in America you've had godfathers, that we used to call them, behind the scenes. In India, the criminal and the politician are actually one. 
And one important reason for that is the nature of competition. There are probably no more competitive elections in the world than in India. Politicians, you know, and criminals, they, they need to take fate into their own hand because it's not like a two-party system where you can kind of guess who's going to win and who's going to lose. I mean, this is really life or death stuff. So in an odd sense, democracy makes it easier for there to be criminality. One of the lessons I take away from this book is that these individuals are actually byproducts of the democratic system. It's very convenient for us to think of them as little provincial dictators running around, capturing elections. That's not the case. They are actually winning in some of the world's most competitive elections through the ballot box, through free and fair elections where there is the sanctity of the secret ballot. There are a lot of so-called clean politicians who don't have a rap sheet. Unfortunately, they don't win as often as those who are crooked do. Now, Prime Minister Modi was elected on a platform where he promised to do what he could to rid corruption and improve India's notorious administrative problems. Has he been successful? One thing Modi has achieved in doing is that there has been very little high-level corruption in the central government and in his cabinet amongst his ministers. He certainly hasn't been implicated in any high-level corruption. But this deeper systemic political corruption, which Modi's party figures very prominently. They have more criminally implicated politicians in parliament than any other party. He has shown no strong willingness to take on that nexus. Last question. India is now experiencing a much higher level of ethnic tension between Hindus and Muslims, something that really had not been very prevalent in the country. And some have suggested that Prime Minister Modi just turns away from that. Is that accurate? Prime Minister Modi's party, the BJP, is a avowedly Hindu nationalist party, and they have a very pro-Hindu outlook and worldview. So this kind of Hindu majoritarianism we're seeing is part and parcel of the BJP. Now, some had hoped that Modi would try to rein in the most extreme elements of the party, and at times he has tried to do that. He cannot lose sight of the fact that these people are his base. These are the people who are the foot soldiers who win you elections on election day. You have to somehow navigate a path where you're bringing progressives, market reformers on the one hand, with people who are actually very nationalist, very majoritarian in their view, and you, you somehow have to keep this odd coalition of bedfellows together. And that's what he's trying to do. So he's trying to say, I'm going to reform the economy. I'm going to make India great again. That sounds familiar. But I have this base that I need to keep. And they're the people who, who've been with me forever. So he's trying to navigate this. And it's a very, very difficult tightrope walk. It's very much like what we're seeing right now, isn't it, in the United States? I would say that there's a lot of analogies that came out after I wrote this book that I had not foreseen, obviously, you know, the events of 2016. And I have to say, in reading your book this past week, when crime pays money and muscle in Indian politics, I just felt that I was learning so much about India, but also an awful lot of warnings about where our democracy is going here in the United States. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. 
visit the firm at gtlaw.com.